Before I get started with the lesson tonight, I wanted to uh, ask you all to keep a member of my family in your prayers. I have a cousin whose name is Mike Stratton, who uh, <clears throat> is suffering uh, in the last stages of a very serious liver disease. And uh, it's possible that some of that has been brought on by a lifetime pretty much spent in uh, drug and alcohol abuse. But it's also possible that there isn't actually a, a connection because there's a little bit of family history of liver disease even for people who don't abuse substances. In any event, uh, <clears throat> Mike uh, expressed some desire to possibly be baptized and uh, was recently released home under the care of hospice uh, because there's just really nothing to do now but essentially wait until he passes away. And uh, <clears throat> this past week, I had made plans to, to go down later in the week and talk with him. But uh, Tuesday morning, I got a call that uh, it looked like his condition had really deteriorated. So as soon as I got the call, I just headed straight home for Kentucky. And uh, fortunately, his condition was more stable than uh, what I had thought it was going to be. But uh, because of some complicating factors, Mike is, is very tall and he has a tremendous fluid buildup, particularly in his legs, uh, just trying to find a, a place where he could actually be immersed uh, proved to be very difficult, and some other factors as well. And so uh, I was able to talk with him, and as best I could in a pretty short amount of time, talk with him about what salvation is and what the Bible says about how, we are, how to respond to the gospel. The problem is there are some other people who have been coming to visit him and talk with him who have a different view of those things. So it complicates things and muddles things. In any event, uh, the family has been working to try to find a place for him to be baptized. And they think that perhaps they have found a place. But uh, because of some of the fluid buildup and some other complications from that, the doctors kind of want him to, to stay at home and get some rest until He's in better health. So just saying all of that to say, if you could please keep my cousin Mike in your prayers, I would really appreciate it. And uh, I really hope that this circumstance will turn out uh, for uh, a victory for the gospel uh, in his life. A couple of weeks ago, I started a study with you on Sunday nights about the providence of God. And I want to pick up where we left off in our study. So far, basically, here's what we've talked about. Providence, as the name suggests, refers, refers to what God provides. What God provides His creation by virtue of the fact that He is the King, He is the provider. And so providence refers to that which God supplies to us. Now last week we talked about the providence of God in the most general sense. In other words, the things that God generally provides to all of us. Whether you're good or bad, uh, God provides an orderly universe in which the sun, moon, and stars follow a pattern that produces an orderly system and arrangement. Uh, he gives us all seasons which enables us to eat and enjoy the fruits of the harvest and so forth. And so there are a lot of examples of the good things that God does that are just available for everybody. Uh, irrespective of whether we're good or bad people. The statement that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount is the classic statement of God's general providence for His creation. When He says that we are to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, 
as he says in verse 45 of Matthew 5, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So if I were to think of the providence of God as a spectrum, what we did in this lesson is basically look at sort of one end of the spectrum, which is just the things that God generally provides for everybody. What we're going to do now is shift to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and look at some very rare and specific and extraordinary acts of God's providence, which we would call miracles. And then, of course, if you think about it, if we look on the one hand at the general things God does for everybody, and now on the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, which are his specific acts of miracles, what that means is there's going to be yet a third aspect of God's providence, which is neither miraculous, which is neither miraculous nor his general provision, but falls somewhere in between. And that's what we'll study together uh, next time. But tonight what I want to do is talk with you about what the Bible says concerning God's miracles. And, and what I find is so often the case in any Bible topic, but I think especially this topic, that what happens is we come to use words in a rather sloppy and casual fashion, and as a result of that, we have some pretty cavalier definitions in our mind of exactly what miracles are. When I was a kid, I think the first time that I really thought about the word miracle was in the 1980 Winter Olympics when uh, the United States defeated the big bad Soviet Union in hockey, and uh, Al Michaels made his famous call, Do You Believe in Miracles? Uh, because nobody expected our hockey team to be able to compete with uh, the Soviets, much less be able to beat them and then go on and, and win a gold medal. We use the term miracles in a very cavalier way, I think. And so what I want to do is to begin tonight with a careful look at the words found in the Bible and what they exactly mean, and then from these different words, craft a definition of what a miracle is that I hope can kind of clear away a little bit of the confusion that exists in people's minds about just exactly what a miracle is. There's one passage in the Bible, Acts 2.22, which uses all three basic terms that are found in the Bible to describe miracles. As Peter stands before the Jews on the day of Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So what I want to do is to begin tonight by taking a look at the three terms that are found here in Acts 2.22, which are mighty works and wonders and signs. I don't usually use a lot of Greek or Hebrew terms. I try to only do it when there's a, an English word that you can kind of relate to it. And it so happens that all three of these terms have an English word that we can relate. First of all, Peter talks about the mighty works of Jesus. And this comes from the Greek word dunamis. It looks like dynamis to us. They would have pronounced it dunamis. It's the root of where we get words like dynamic or dynamite. And uh, we know what those words mean. Somebody who's dynamic is somebody who has a lot of energy. If somebody has a stick of dynamite, they really have a lot of energy. Very compressed, but which can be unleashed and cause great good or evil, I suppose, depending on which way you're going to use it. Well, the Greek word means power, might, and strength. 
when the Bible talks about the mighty works of Jesus or anybody else as far as that goes, what it refers to is the awesome power that was displayed in the miracle itself. For example, when Jesus simply by speaking a word can heal someone who has a withered hand, or when Jesus can simply take water and turn it into wine, that is amazing power to transform uh, nature like that. And of course, the ultimate example, I would think, is when Jesus can take somebody who was dead for four days, like Lazarus, and simply say the words, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes bounding up out of the tomb. Four days dead, but risen from the dead. That's power, amazing power that is displayed in the miracle itself. The second term that Peter uses is the term wonder. It comes from the Greek word that we would connect with the word terror, which means amazement and alarm. And what this Greek word referred to is to wonder or to marvel or to be amazed. And so what this word refers to is the reaction to the miracle as people would see it. That uh, there was no debate as to whether something truly amazing had happened when Jesus performed a miracle Everybody knew that something amazing had occurred. Think of the miracles that we've already studied together in our series in the Gospel of Mark, such as when he's able to heal a man who was paralyzed. Think of the, uh, the miracles in the Gospel of John that we studied together, wow, I guess two years ago now. We preached through the, the seven signs of the Gospel of John and things like where Jesus took a man who had been lame for 38 years and instantly healed him and how it, it amazed the people. Or the man in John 9 who was born blind, a seemingly irreparable condition in Jesus' day. And yet he's able to heal him and the amazing impact that had on the people who said to themselves, wait a minute, this is that guy who was blind. And so that refers to the reaction that people had to the miracle that Jesus would perform. And then the third term that Peter mentions here is the term sign. I don't know if any of you who were in the military ever had to learn semaphore, but semaphore, of course, is a series of coded signals, usually with flags, that send a message. And our English word semaphore finds its origin in this Greek word from which we get the word sign or mark or token. And very often in the Bible, this is the term that is used to describe the miracles of Jesus and other men in the Bible. They are signs. In other words, they are miracles with a message. And what we should think about is the meaning behind the miracle that was performed. That these were not just simply random miracles. In my, in my class over at uh, Morningside on, on Friday mornings, we've been reading through the book of Exodus together. And uh, where we are is we just finished the plagues and the actual Exodus itself and uh, we've got the children of Israel up to Mount Sinai. But one of the things that stood out to me reading through that book this time is how many times when God announces the plagues that he says, I'm going to do this so that you may know that I am the true God. And at some points he even says, so that everybody can know, the whole earth can know that I am the true God. Those plagues were intended to be visual aids to illustrate to the children of Israel and to the Egyptians, there is one true God, and he is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In John's gospel, this is the word that he uses. 
uh, almost exclusively to describe what Jesus does, the signs of Jesus. He picks out seven of them in the Gospel of John. And it's not too hard to figure out what the signs in the Gospel of John signify. The first one is in John 2, when Jesus is at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee, and he turns the water to wine, a great miracle of transformation. And followed right after that in John 3, Jesus has the exchange with Nicodemus, in which he says, you must be born again. You must be transformed. Just like the water to wine is transformed, to be in God's kingdom, you must be transformed. Uh, The next sign in the Gospel of John is in John 4, when Jesus heals the nobleman's son at a distance. And so what that signifies is the fact that there is no distance that can be between us and God such that he still cannot do his great work, such as healing the nobleman's son. In John 5, the lame man we already talked about, who had been lame for 38 years, time is no factor for God. No matter how long someone had been lame physically, God, by his great power, could heal them. And so therefore, from a spiritual standpoint, no matter how long someone may have been uh, disabled spiritually, uh, they are not beyond the saving power of Jesus Christ. John 6 contains two miracles, the uh, feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. Both display Jesus' great power over nature. The feeding of the 5,000 in particular, Jesus uses as a teaching opportunity to explain that he is the true bread of life that came down from heaven. And that if he can supply this much of your physical need, imagine how much he can supply your spiritual need. And the point he draws from that is, if you eat of the bread that I can give you, you'll never go hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again. I can satisfy you and give you sustenance for all of eternity. In John 9, Jesus heals the blind man. And the obvious point there is the point Jesus makes, which is when he says, I am the light of the world. And just as he can give physical light And sight to someone who is blind, he can give spiritual sight to those who are blind in sin. And of course, the significance of the raising of Lazarus in John 11, Jesus himself teaches, I am the resurrection and the life. So that's what we need to understand about these miracles is that they are miracles with a message. They are signs. They signify something uh, that we are to learn from God and from his designated workers. Now, when I look at these three terms... Mighty work, terror or wonder, and sign. Here's the definition that when you just blend all three of those things together, that to me captures what the Bible says about a miracle. And that is that a miracle is an event that could only be caused by God. You might even want to insert the term directly by God, which produced wonder and signified his authority. That's what a miracle is. The United States hockey team pulling off a great upset over the Soviet Union was unexpected and it was unordinary, but it certainly does not qualify by this kind of definition. And people did not respond to it in the same way they responded to things that Jesus did in his ministry. And when we use the term miracle, I just want to caution you that, uh, you know, right now in our economy, we're going through a little bit of inflation, at least in some segments of the economy. And a similar thing can happen with words and ideas. When you overuse words and you cheapen them, then they lose their their value to the point that they don't have any value at all. And I'm not a particular stickler for things like this, 
But I just think we need to understand that if we just casually throw the term miracle around, for anything and everything that's just unordinary or is amazing to us or what have you, uh, what can happen is we can begin to cheapen a little bit when we read these miracles in the Bible, which were truly special and different and unique events. Now, since I have been here, I've done an awful lot of sermons, or at least I have mentioned to you in passing a lot of critical theories about who Jesus is and about what the Gospels are and, and so on. We, I did a whole series a couple summers ago on the Da Vinci Code, and I've done lessons about, uh, the, the, remember, the lost tomb of Jesus. They supposedly found the tomb where Jesus and his family was buried and so on. And uh, what you need to understand is that at the root of all of those critical theories, not only the ones of relatively recent origin, but all the way back, that what is at root of all of those theories is the fundamental belief that what we just talked about does not and cannot and never did happen. That miracles cannot happen. And the basic critical belief is this, that a miracle, by definition, is a violation of natural law. We have observed natural laws, and we know they are fixed and unchanging. So therefore, by definition, miracles cannot take place. And so there was nobody who could turn water to wine. It is impossible to think that someone could feed 5,000 people from just a handful of pieces of bread and fish. People who are dead do not rise from the dead. That's the basic mindset which is at the back of all denials of the biblical teaching about who Jesus is or the Gospels themselves. <clears throat> In the 1700s, a man named David Hume put it like this. A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, <clears throat> and as a firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. So here's what he's saying. Natural laws, by definition, are fixed, observable, unchanging principles. And so by definition, nothing can ever violate those laws. Now, do you all remember last, uh, last week, last Sunday night, that I made the point to you in the lesson that we need to be careful about making dramatic claims about natural law. And if you remember, the reason I said that is because natural law is nothing more than our description of what we observe generally taking place. It is not as if somebody one day found inscribed on a piece of stone the second law of thermodynamics or whatever physics principle you want to find. The things that we call laws of nature are really just simply our descriptions of how at the present time we understand things work, which can often change and has changed dramatically from century to century in science. And so what I would say to David Hume, and in fact what believers said to him in his day and time was, you are making an assumption that a natural law is like the Ten Commandments. It is not. A natural law is something that we observe and we describe but what if there are occasions when people, under very unique circumstances, actually observe something different than the ordinary happen? 
That's the whole point. Uh, another writer, this is somebody who is of our own day and time, a former preacher named Dan Barker, wrote a book called Losing Faith in Faith. And here's his argument about miracles. If a believer starts recounting a miracle, ask them to define the word miracle. And then if they say this, so he's just already. If you can just get him to say a miracle is an impossible event, then it defines itself out of existence. So you can just win the whole battle by definition. If it's a highly unlikely event, then it is much more likely that there is a simpler natural explanation or that the tale was inaccurately reported. Well, this is the reason why I wanted to produce a definition that isn't just arbitrary, but in which we just looked at the biblical words and then pieced together, here's what these terms actually mean. Uh, now, I want to respond just a second here to just this overall critical notion. First of all, if you believe that this universe had a beginning and that it was caused to begin by a power that is outside of this world, that's transcendent, if you believe there is a creator of our universe who is not subject to our laws of nature but in fact created these whole processes, then miracles are not illogical at all. If you believe there's a God who could create the universe by speaking it into existence, then there is no way logically you could say that the same creator who made this world could not also at times intervene and do things that are also extraordinary. So here is the real issue. The issue is not, theoretically, can miracles happen? The issue is, do you believe there's a creator or not? And I would just say this to you. I would never waste my time arguing with somebody about any of the miracles of Jesus or Jesus' resurrection who doesn't believe in God. Because they've chosen to put on a pair of glasses that they look at the world through such that there is no amount of evidence you will ever give them that they will look at and agree is sound or logical. If I was going to talk to somebody who did not believe in God... What I would talk to them about are the very powerful reasons you should believe that this world has not always been here and that it had a beginning that was intelligently designed. That's where I would start. Once you establish that premise, then you can move on and talk about miracles. Just think about it like this. Can you think of a single example in the Bible of anyone in the Bible trying to convince somebody of a miracle who didn't believe in God of some kind? They just never did that. Now, part of that is because true, actual, formal atheism was so rare in the ancient world that that wasn't something they encountered a lot, except just among a certain element of the Greek philosophers. But my point is, this is the issue. I, I think of it like this. If you don't have a problem with Genesis 1, there isn't any miracle you're going to read in Genesis 2 through the maps, or concordance, or however your Bible ends. There's not a miracle you're going to read that is a logical problem if you agree there is a creator who in the beginning made the heavens and the earth. If you don't believe that, before we can ever talk about these miracles, we need to talk about why you should believe there's a creator. All right? So that's the first point that I want to make. Here is the second point. Everyone agrees that miracles are by definition out of the ordinary. If you think about it, if you think about the terms... If the things that the Bible calls miracles were happening all the time, they would have never seemed extraordinary acts of God. They would have just been par for the course. 
they would have never had any signifying value. If everybody could do them, and they did them all the time, it wouldn't prove anything about anybody. So everybody understands, yes, of course, the miracles in the Bible, and miracles by definition, are rare and unusual and extraordinary. But the issue is, is there evidence that there were people who actually, an eyewitness accounts, could tell you about things that happened that can only be described as miracles. That's the issue. And I believe the evidence is overwhelming that there are people who did see things that are miracles. Now somebody says, well, yeah, but you don't believe that about everybody who comes along and claims they saw a miracle, right? That's right. I don't believe that. Well, then what makes the claims in the Bible so different? Well, just to illustrate, think about the miracles of Jesus. You know, there were people in Jesus' day and time among the Greeks and Romans who claimed to be miracle workers of one sort or another. But if you read about some of the things those people claimed to do versus what Jesus did, here's what you're going to find. First of all, Jesus is unique in the sheer number of miracles that he performed. If you look at the four gospel accounts, there are approximately 35 miracles that Jesus performed. They were displays of dramatic power, calming storms, feeding multitudes, healing the blind, raising people from the dead. That's the order of magnitude of these miracles. Furthermore, Jesus did them in a wide variety of locations and methods. If somebody could only heal people in one certain spot, that starts to get a little bit fishy because what it suggests is that the real power has to do more with the location than with the person. Jesus performed miracles all over the place. One of the things I've often wondered in the Gospels is, why did Jesus do it so differently? You know, there's times where he would just speak from miles away. There are times where he would speak in person. There are times where he would touch them. There were times where they'd touch him. There's the time in John 9, I don't know if you've ever been, if this has ever struck you as peculiar, where he has the, the guy make the clay and rub it on his eyes and then wash it off. Why did he do it so differently? But then when you read about so-called miracle workers in the ancient literature, they always had a particular gimmick they had to use. And I think that one of the evidential powers of Jesus doing his miracles in such a wide variety of methods is nobody could ever say he only had one special gimmick. He did them in a wide variety of, of ways and methods. Furthermore, there were many eyewitnesses. Um, I'll give you two pieces of evidence in terms of the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' miracles. First of all, 5,000 people, pretty good number of eyewitnesses. And all of them got first-hand evidence of what Jesus could do in the feeding of the 5,000. The second piece of evidence I would give you in terms of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' miracles is, even his worst enemies <clears throat> never disputed that he performed supernatural signs. They never took issue with the fact that Jesus did things that could not be explained by the normal natural processes. They always would say that he did them by the power of the devil. But they never denied he was doing signs that were amazing and unique. And the final thing I would say to you is this, and I think it's a very overlooked point. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and look in uh, chapter 7 of Luke? You know, as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that I have learned in reading Mark is the emphasis that Jesus placed on his teaching over his miracles. 
Not to rehash all those points, but just remember that in Mark 1 and verse 38-39, he says, the purpose I have come for is to preach. And the fact that his miracles made him so popular often impeded those efforts to preach. Well, by the same token, we need to understand that the miracles that Jesus chose to do were chosen specifically because of their biblical nature. What I mean by that is, if you remember from our study of Isaiah, in some of the messianic sections of Isaiah, he talks about that when the Messiah comes, there are some things he will do, certain miracles he will do. Now, in in Luke 7, the account here is John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one? And so Jesus says, oh, here's what I want you to tell John. This is in Luke 7 and verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, verse 22, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. Now, I don't know about you, but in my Bible, I have cross-references and footnotes. And on that verse, there are a multitude of cross-references that take you, for instance, back to the book of Isaiah. Do any of your Bibles have cross-references like that? If not, you get a better Bible. Because you need to have a Bible that's got good cross-references on it. There are a lot of them here. These come right out of the book of Isaiah. And the point Jesus is making in this answer is not simply, look at my impressive resume of signs that I'm doing. I mean, those are impressive. But what he's specifically saying is you can go tell John that all of those signs which the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would do, those are the signs that I am doing. So that Jesus' miracles worked hand in hand with the message of God's word itself. And that connection between the miracles of the Bible and revelation itself is something that I believe is absolutely important for us to understand. What the Bible teaches is that there is a strong connection between miracles and God's giving new revelation. If you think about it, miracles in the Bible are not evenly distributed from Genesis to Revelation. They occur in clumps. And usually they occur in eras in which God is particularly giving new revelation. The life of Moses is a paramount example of that. The life of Jesus and the apostles is another example of this as well. And the reason is because miracles are signs. They signify something. In fact, if you think again about what Peter said in Acts 2.22, he said that this was a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. He was attested by God. God was testifying, this is my son. This is the man that you should listen to. And this is something that the Bible teaches about miracles generally. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says in verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, 
It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness. So this is what the writer is saying. We have a great salvation declared first by the Lord, attested to us by those who heard, that's the apostles, while God also bore witness. How did he bear witness? By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What we should see in the Bible is a strong link between an era in which God is giving new revelation and these miracles that bear testimony to those who are giving this revelation. Now, what about miracles today? A lot of things like you read about here in the Bible. The blind receiving sight by somebody laying their hands on them and so on. Hebrews chapter 2 suggests to me that there is going to be a limited time frame for these miracles because of its close connection to the revelation of the gospel message given through Jesus and the apostles. And I think that this, this connection is borne out by the way the Bible speaks about these miracles and the way that they were and were not transferred. So here's an illustration of this point. Look with me over in Acts chapter 8. Actually, let me back you up. Acts chapter 6, remember there is the controversy over the, the care of the widows. And the apostles say, look, we're, we're busy with the ministry of prayer and the word. You need to choose some people to take care of this. So they pick seven men from among them. <clears throat> One of these men in Acts 6 and verse 5 is named Philip. And it says in Acts 6 and verse 6, these they set before the apostles... And they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the apostles pray for these men and lay their hands on these men. All right, chapter 7 is the sermon of Stephen, which triggers the great persecution against the Christians. And so the Christians in Acts chapter 8 have to flee Jerusalem, except for the apostles. It says in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 2, excuse me, verse 1, the apostles stayed behind in Jerusalem. So verse 4 says in Acts 8, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip. So this is not Philip the apostle. They were left behind in Jerusalem. This would be the Philip in Acts 6, the servant. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. All right. Samaritans then became Christians. It says in verse 12 that when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so then in verse 14, here's the point that I want you to see. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here is the point in this account, if I understand all these details correctly. You have the apostles in Jerusalem. They pick seven men, one of whom is Philip, and they lay their hands on him. Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and he performs signs, which amaze the Samaritans. They listen to the message of the gospel. Some of them respond. When that took place, what does not happen is Philip does not lay his hands on them as if what he had from the apostles was transferable. 
What happens is the apostles come down and pray for them and lay their hands on them. And then verse 18 makes this explicit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, then we all know what happened to him. But if I understand the details of this text correctly, what it is telling us is that the apostles could lay their hands on people and pass on certain gifts to them, but that wasn't transferable. That this was something limited to what the apostles themselves could do. And what this suggests to me then is that the signs and wonders and mighty works that we read about in the New Testament were gifts given only by the apostles, and so therefore would have been limited to roughly the time of the apostles themselves, and then whenever that generation that they might have laid their hands on would have subsequently passed away. And so when somebody asks me, does God work through people like he did through the apostles in the first century? My answer is I don't think so. If I understand this text correctly, I believe that that time frame was limited. I will say this. God is God, and he calls the shots. So he does what he wishes. And on the issue of whether God works through human instruments to lay on hands and things like that, I think this text gives us a clear indication. But in terms of what God may choose to do, just by his own sovereign power, is uh, God's business. I know he's not you know, relieved to hear me say that. He's God. He already knows that that's the truth. I'm just telling you that's what I think is the truth. And uh, here's why I think it's important just for us to have the humility to acknowledge this point. If we, if we fall into the same trap, if, let me see if I can make this make sense. If we fall into the same trap <clears throat> of defining miracles by this strong link to what we define as natural law, and if we don't think that God does miracles, we could easily fall into the trap of saying, you know what? The doctors have said so-and-so is beyond help, so I'm not going to pray for them to be healed because God doesn't do that anymore. And I just don't think we should ever allow ourselves to fall into that trap. We have to understand, obviously, we don't know everything. And a lot of things that people in the medical or scientific community may say are impossible may not be impossible at all. We just don't know enough. So they're not possible by what we think. But I'm not going to fall into a trap of having some tedious argument over whether something is or is not a violation of natural law. What I'm going to say is this. I know what I don't think God does. I don't think God works through people in hands and things like that. But if I know somebody who is sick, then I am not going to hesitate to pray to God if it is His will to heal them, whether anybody can ever explain it or not. And I'm not going to fall into some kind of pedantic argument over whether that was a miracle or not. What I'm going to put my trust in is that I will pray to God and He will act according to His will. And if it so happens that that person is healed, rather than try to figure out how it happened, I'm just going to rejoice that that person has been healed. I remember when I was a student at Florida College that Michael Grant had some growth in his lungs. And I never understood totally what it was. I don't think they all understood. It was a fibrous growth in his lungs, and it was so intermeshed in his lungs, they told us, there's nothing we can do for it. And so we did all that we knew to do, which was to pray. 
And he was healed. And I'm not going to sit around and say what God could or could not do or whether that was a miracle or not. What I'm going to say is we prayed and if it was God's will for him to be healed and he was healed and that's a time for rejoicing. And I just always think it's important for us never to put our understanding of God in a box that the Bible itself does not create. Where the scripture speaks and is clear, we must be clear and accept. But otherwise, we need to put our trust into the Lord who has such great power. I'd like to ask you now to, to take your song books out or prepare for the invitation song. And I just want to say something to you before we conclude tonight. I don't think I have ever been as disappointed in my life as a preacher as I was Tuesday when I went to talk to my cousin and he expressed a desire to be baptized and we were just unable to do it. I think that is the most frustrating day I have ever had as somebody who wants to try to help people become Christians. And part of it was frustrating, and I'll be totally honest, because of pride, because you like to think you can always figure out a way to handle something. And I just couldn't figure out anything to do. We tried everything we could think of. Just nothing would work. And so just from a very vain sense, it was a frustrating day. But the other thing that was frustrating about it is just knowing that several years ago, when Mike was in a point where it would not be so difficult, I tried to talk with him a little bit, and he just never responded. And that's what's so frustrating, is when you see somebody get to the point where finally they understand something needs to be done, and it's just so tough. That is what is so frustrating. And as it happened, when I went by to see Granny before I, I came on back home that night, one of my other cousins was there looking after her. And I have probably been far more reluctant about sharing the gospel, even with members of my own family, than I should. I'll just tell you that. But I just finally had to say, Laney, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. But I just got to tell you, after this afternoon, if there's something you need to do to make your life right with the Lord... Don't wait until it becomes so tough. And so that's been on my heart this week. And I just want to say that to all of us here tonight. That for a lot of different reasons, we can make it really tough on ourselves to do what we know is right. And it only gets tougher. It does not get easier when you keep putting it off. And so if, there, if there's something in your life that you need to, to deal with as a Christian or some area of your life in which you know you are in rebellion against the will of God and you need to repent, but you just keep delaying and putting it off, all you're doing is becoming more deeply enmeshed in the sin and hardening your conscience more and becoming more accustomed to it and you're making it tougher to deal with something that God wants to help you deal with. And if you're not a Christian, by all means, we want you to understand, the more opportunities you turn by, the more difficult you make it for yourself. And so if there's something that you need to do tonight, whether to become a Christian or to make a correction as one, we want to encourage you to come now while we stand and sing together.